all know in our lives from time to time that we may hear someone referred to as a model in some way. We may say, uh, as a teacher, you may say, that guy, that girl is a model student. You may say, as a coach, he is a model teammate. We may say in our world that she is a model citizen. And when we use that word, a model student, a model teammate, a model citizen, what we are thinking in our mind is that if we were designing, if we were drawing up what a student would be, there it is. Let's make some copies of that. Someone might say, if I could have every teammate like she is, or every teammate like he is, give me 10,000 of those every year. They're a model teammate. We see characteristics, we see qualities about them that we know that's what it was drawn up to be. And this morning I want to speak to you for a few minutes from Ephesians 5 about being a model Christian. What does it look like to be a model Christian? And Ephesians 5, what we have is the Apostle Paul showing us this is how it was drawn up. This is the design. This is what it looks like to be a model Christian and duplicate this over and over again. In Ephesians 5, we have this, this, these descriptors of how you live as a Christian. Uh, there are certain characteristics for us to build into our life. In verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 5, we see the right model is God. That's who we pattern our life after, particularly the characteristics of holiness and righteousness. We have in verse 1 a right motive. The reason that we would model God is from a motive of love. And then we, in a few verses down, actually, we'll look at next week, the right means for modeling God, for modeling His righteousness and holiness in life. Look with me and... I want you to just hear these verses as we see what it looks like to live the Christian life. Not to become a Christian. Not to gain Christianity. Not to earn faith. But here's the evidence of a life of faith. A walk that is worthy of what we have been called to. Ephesians 5 verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God. As beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no f nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What does it mean to be a model Christian? There are four characteristics that I want to call your attention to in these 14 verses of chapter 5. Keep in mind, there's a right model. This, he says in verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God. The Greek word there for imitators is the same word that we get our uh, English word mimic from. It is a, it's, it's a word that means to copy, to, to note the characteristics and to put them into our life, to put them into your ways of acting. Translated here, imitator. Translated at times, model. When he says, be a model of God, look at Ephesians 4, verse 24. Talking about the old self and the new self. Verse 24, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. And so the model for us, when we imitate God, is that we're called to imitate his holiness and his righteousness and then the motive for this is love the motive for this is not to earn salvation the motive for this is evidence of salvation and it's to display who God is in our heart in our life and in a world around us he says and walk in love Christ as what kind of love as Christ loved us what is that what kind of love was that? It was a love that gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And so he shows us that right living, modeling who God is, is actually a way to love other people. It's a way to love sacrificially. And you might even say, well, that's, uh, that's permissible. or, or that I, I can do that because of grace. And he says there's a love that we have where we self-sacrifice. And it comes as an offering to God, a fragrant offering and a way, the, the, a way that we live, a way that we model God, a way that we imitate God becomes a sacrifice to God. And later in these verses, we'll see that it's something that's described as, as pleasing to God. Over these next few minutes, you'll hear me talk about some things that uh, maybe you've heard of in the past as being there's that list of things that you can't do 
there it is, those do's and don'ts. And if you're just dropping into Watkinsville this morning or just dropping into church for the first time in a long time and maybe it's do's and don'ts that you reacted to, just, just didn't want that kind of just moral uh, rule of law that was out there for Christianity, I want to remind you that Christianity doesn't start in Ephesians 4. Christianity starts in Ephesians 1. And Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 talks about how God called us, chose us, adopted us, gave us the Holy Spirit to live within us, to seal us for the day of redemption. We were dead in our sins. And by Christ's death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, we're able to be alive to Christ. We, we go from death to life. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at this new life that's described as, as he's describing. You can just see in Ephesians, building from chapter 1 to chapter 6, Paul describing a new society, a, a new kind of people where you go from not, not being Jews and not being Gentiles and doing your own thing, but coming together under the name of Christ, a new race, a new people, a new society, and, and you have this relationship with God. Jesus is king, you're a citizen of heaven, you've gone from death to life, but it doesn't stop there, and you're living however you want to live, there's a way to live as a new person, as a new creation in Christ, and he says, put off your old self and put on your new self, and now he's describing what it looks like, we saw the, the way he described in the end of chapter 4, that in our new self we relate to others with kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiving one another. He says in verse 31 of chapter 4, all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. It's talking about how we relate to one another. And then chapter 5 gets into our own practical living in life. And it just helps me as I process through these practical chapters of of Ephesians to remember that the do's and don'ts flow out of what's been done. They flow out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. This, this, this letter again and again refers to our relationship with God as us being in Christ. And Christ in us is fleshed out in everyday life with a new kind of living that's compared to light in the darkness. And our pursuit of holiness and a pattern of righteousness. Does it, 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 it comes as, as light in the darkness. As a demonstration of Christ in us. So we're talking about in these verses. How what we believe impacts how we behave. It shows that how, how we have become this new person. Now shows up in how we live as that new person. Four characteristics of a model Christian. I'm going to do what they say never to do in seminary. I want to give you the outline before we talk all the way through it. I want you to have the whole, the whole picture here. The four characteristics of a model Christian are this. Number one, a pure life. Number two, a clean mouth. Number three, a thankful heart. And number four, a right mind. Number one, 
A model Christian is one who has a pure life. In verse 3, we're given these, this triad of vices. We're given this, uh, this, these, three, these three descriptors that are grouped together in chapter 3 that describes a pure life or an impure life. And to put on the new self, we're going to have a pure life. He says in verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, sometimes translated greed, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. That phrase, as is proper among saints, don't, don't let today's language cause you to miss the meaning of the word saints. Uh, we, we can begin to think that saints there refers to some kind of higher tier of Christian living. And we might joke and say, well, I'm no saint. Well, in, in God's vocabulary of his word, if you say, I'm no saint, you're basically saying, I'm no follower of Christ. I'm not saved. I don't have a relationship with God. The word saint there refers to believers. It refers to those that have been saved, that have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, there is something that is proper among the saved. There is something that, are, that is proper among those set apart in Christ. And here's what is not proper. Sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness or greed. The words there, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, the standard for it in Christian living is that there is not to even be a hint of it. Uh, he, he says in ESV here, must not even be named among you. And as the Apostle Paul looks at just Christianity and thinks mindfully of the Ephesian audience that he was writing to, that he was saying, in your, in your world as followers of Christ, there's those that make up the church in that area. This is, it's not even talked about among you. There's no excuse. It's not okay for that person, but not okay for these 50s. It's, it's, it's just not even, it doesn't figure into who you are. Sexual immorality is a word that's translated from the Greek word pornea. And you just hear that word said out loud, Greek word pornea. Our mind immediately goes to the English word of pornography. And it is, a, it is describing a, the sexual life, sexual activity that, it, that is outside the boundaries of what God has established as holy and righteous. Impurity is another Greek word that simply serves to broaden the descriptor of sexual sin. And it was a word to describe, un, to describe uncleanness, indecency. And he's saying that to be a model Christian, to imitate God in his righteousness and his holiness, is that there is among us no hint, no mention. There, there's no examples of sexual immorality, of indecency, of uncleanness. It has been in some extreme ways described that sexual uh, activity in some way is dirty and wrong 
It'll remind you that what he is saying is dirty and wrong here is sexual activity that is outside the design and boundaries of Almighty God. And just in simplicity, what is sex that God celebrates? Sexual activity that God celebrates is sexual activity that is between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage for life. That's the sexual morality that God has designed and created and given to a couple as a gift for his glory. And then he speaks of greed or covetousness. It ties tightly to sexual immorality and impurity because it is a a word that describes unrestrained desire for more. And it may be an unrestrained desire for more sexual activity. It may be an unrestrained desire for more food. It may be an unrestrained desire for more money. It's just a more, 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 more cannot have. I don't have any sense of contentment. And he says, that's not the pure life that is designed for Christianity. I remind you that as we work through these verses, that we're not picking up some text that was written back in the 50s when America was maybe viewed as more conservative or whatever time period you might refer to. We're looking at a text here that was 2,000 years old, the writing into a culture of their day that from the time of Jesus' birth and death and resurrection and ascension to heaven and uh, faith in him, this is, a, this is what it looks like to follow Christ, a life of purity. But why would that be so? Because he describes sexual immorality and impurity and greed as it's, it's described as something that is lustful instead of loving. It's about self-indulgence instead of self-sacrifice. It considers self first instead of considering others first. He describes these sins of sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness as idolatry. And let me tell you, it will help you in your temptation and battle toward sexual immorality or toward impurity or toward greed to see those sins as idolatry. To see those sins as things that we put in the place of God where we go to those areas of life to find some kind of satisfaction, to worship in a way, to devote our life to those things, to be controlled by those things. And you've you've put something in the place of where God belongs. The one who deserves and demands our ultimate love and devotion and worship. See, our lives are earthly demonstrations of a godly revelation. When people look at our life, it's not enough for them just to hear that you're Christian. When people look at our life, see our life and know our life, They need to see Christianity. They see holiness. They see purity. Maybe today, without going into a lot of detail or statistics of sexual immorality or impurity or greed, just saying the words out loud would be 
something by God's grace that he's thrown in front of your life to confront you to say if you're a follower of Christ maybe there's some things that need to become pure some things that need to stop some things that need to be different the Holy Spirit would bring conviction of some way that you're fulfilling some way that you're operating outside the boundaries of God's design for sexual morality and purity. Secondly, a model Christian has a pure life, and number two, has a clean mouth. In verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. And I just got to tell you, I, I can't read this verse without... thinking of those glorious days when my parents practiced washing your mouth out with soap. It seemed to be that my older brother found great delight in reporting to my parents words that he heard me say that he knew would result in that great experience. Certainly it, it served its purpose and served as a marker in my life of words and talk and jokes that uh, my parents didn't approve of. But we know that even though that creates some kind of discipline in our life, that washing our mouth out with soap doesn't address the real issue. That our words and our talk flow from somewhere much deeper than our mouth. It comes from the heart. Jesus himself said in Matthew 15 that the words of our mouth show uh, the evil of the heart. And he gives a way for us to talk. It's so, it's so practical here. Think about as he's, he's building a society and you have a, a group of people living in Ephesus who's been introduced to this person of Jesus and they've placed his faith in him and they're asking these questions well what does this mean about how I treat my neighbor across the street who do you know what he did to me forgive one another how, what am I how do, I, I does it affect how I relate to people sexually no sexual immorality does it affect how I talk what I speak about yeah you'll even talk different and he describes here these this triad in verse 4 of filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking filthiness there just it just is like we would refer to they just have a dirty mouth and I don't have to give a, examples of that you, there's a, enough Holy Spirit in this room and enough consciousness in your heart to be able to know and hear, feel the check in your spirit when there's filthiness that comes out of your mouth or foolish talk that comes out of your mouth or crude joking that you participate in. Warren Wearsby says there, there's a, there are two indicators of our character and they are what makes us laugh and what makes us weep. And an indicator of our Christian character, the things that we uh, laugh at, the things that we cry over. And he shows that with Christ in us, that that even changes the way 
we speak. And to be in a crowd as light with a crowd that the word would describe as darkness, our speech is going to look different. The things that we talk about is going to look different. The things that we joke about is going to sound different. Why? Because we've taken off the old life and we've put on the new life. A life that reflects the light of Christ. And a great indicator for us, if, if we've gotten over on the dark side, if you will, is if we would bring Jesus into that conversation. And just imagine him sitting in that chair with you. Imagine him in that conversation with you. Imagine him with you. Because he is. And would this be taught that he would find pleasing? Jokes that he would find pleasing. Perhaps you've heard the historical accounts of the Welsh revival that took place in the early 1900s. And as the gospel of Christ swept across the land and people from all different classes and races and, and came to know Christ, one of the things that Historians tell us is that in the mines where coal was removed from the earth, there were animals, donkeys, that were used in the mining process. And when the revival struck through and the lives and hearts were changed, that production in the coal mines went down because the donkeys could not understand the language of those that had been working with them in the mines. And they had to retrain the commands and the language with the donkeys in order for them to understand who it was given in the orders. We have a tendency in our culture to excuse language, especially if it applies to certain occupations. And all of us can think of examples where we say, well, that's just, cussing is just a part of that job, a part of that world. And, and it'd, be, it'd be terrible if you went away today and the takeaway was the pastor got on to us about cussing. I, I've, I've, I think when I preached through Ephesians years ago, one of the things that has never been forgotten of those that were here is that I said on, maybe on the Sunday that I dealt with this text that I always felt like there should be one day a year that we just called National Day of Cussing. That makes you nervous, doesn't it? I, I just... It's like you just, you think, well, if I could just, you know what that is? It's just flesh. And it's just a reminder to us that in our life, there's a lot of old self that the Spirit of God is still working. What's the big technical term that we call that? Sanctification. And there's this work of sanctification that God is doing in us to where he says, look, you're to pursue a pure life. You're to pursue a clean mouth third a thankful heart the antidote to the poison of immorality and impurity and greed and sinful speech is thanksgiving thanksgiving it's really phenomenal what happens in our life spiritually when thanksgiving becomes our first line of defense and offense just a very blunt statement here he says 
uh, let there be no filthiness, no foolish, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. It's a remembrance of how blessed we are, noticing what we have been given instead of noticing what we want. Thanksgiving creates a, some kind of immunity against so many spiritual temptations. In, Ephesians, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Thankful heart. Would you stop for just a moment here with me and think of your most challenging issue in your life right now. Maybe the greatest temptation that you're facing or the greatest challenge that you're facing, the greatest worry that's hanging over you this morning. Take just a moment to address that. What in that could you be thankful for? What are you missing in that challenge that you could say, Lord, let me just say not now, in the middle of this, I'm thankful for. There's a fourth characteristic, a pure life, clean mouth, a thankful heart, and a right mind. Verse 6 of Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were the fruit, for at one time you were darkness. Now you are light. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The Apostle Paul is teaching us here that in our everyday living of putting on the new self that we need to work in our minds about what it looks like to live for Christ. We need discernment and we need to be alert of deception. Discernment is a word that describes the weighing back and forth. It's a weighing back and forth. It's taking God's word and applying it to a life situation and and seeing what is God doing in this? What is God saying? What is God's truth about this? Is there a lie somewhere in this that the enemy's brought into play? And, we, and it's a call here to say, what would be pleasing to the Lord? Weigh those things out. In Philippians chapter 4. After that verse on thanksgiving, he goes on in verse 8 and says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, here's the word, think about these things. And it's a call that in our Christian living that what we believe affects how we think. And how we think affects how we behave. And he's calling on us to discern in life, in our mind, 
the right and the wrong, the pure and the holy, the righteous, what is light and what is darkness, and go toward light because that's who you are. Be careful in what you read and what you listen to, the advice you receive, what you use to base your decisions on. He calls us here to imitate God's righteousness and purity and part of that is discerning what is pleasing to him. These verses are a call to conforming who we are now. It's a call to conforming to who we are now. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said years ago that a holy life is in itself a wonderful power and will make up for many deficiencies. It is, in fact, the best sermon the best man could ever deliver. Somewhere along the way, you might never stand in front of a room and deliver, quote, a sermon. But these verses are a reminder to us that in everyday living, as those who bear the name of Christ, we're preaching that sermon over and over again with a pure life and a clean mouth and a thankful heart and a right mind. So some questions. Just some questions to kind of think about, are there some things that we need to ask the Holy Spirit to filter out of our life, to remove from our life, to change in our life? What actions have become idols for you? And a good way for us to know what our idols are is what happens when they're taken away. What actions have become idols to you? Are there actions you hide from public knowledge? You want to keep them secret. What needs to be cleaned up in your life? Does the room get brighter or darker when you walk in? Does the conversation get cleaner when you talk? Does gratitude flow from you? Do you think more of what you want or think more for what you have? Are you alert to the need to discern what is darkness and what is light? I close with these words from John Stott. Of all that I've read, he seems to just succinctly describe so beautifully what we're talking about here in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5. And he says, these chapters are strong summons. These chapters are stirring summons to the unity of and purity of the church. But they are more than that. Their theme is the integration of Christian experience, what we are, what we believe, how we behave. They emphasize that being, thought, and action belong together and must never be separated. For what we are governs how we think, and how we think determines how we act. We are God's new society. A people who have put off the old life and put on the new. That is what he has made us. So we need to recall this by the daily renewal of our minds. Remembering how we learned Christ as the truth is in Jesus. And thinking Christianly about ourselves and our new status. Then we must actively cultivate a Christian life. 
For holiness is not a condition into which we drift. We are not passive spectators of a sanctification. God works in us. On the contrary, we we have to purposely put away from us all the conduct that is incompatible with our new life and to put on a lifestyle compatible with it. Let's pray together. Father, today, by your Holy Spirit, would you work in us as a body, making us model Christians? Would you convict, Lord, starting with me, it's all over this room, Lord, of areas that have allowed impurity to creep in, more covetousness than thankfulness. Lord, would you give us wisdom to discern what is pleasing to you? And Lord, the tongue, as the book of says, book of James says, it's a fire. Who can control it? But Lord, together in this room, I pray that you would brighten the light of Christianity. When we walk out of this room, that who you are in us would show up in who we are in the world. And people would see you. Jesus' name.